Good morning. Happy Easter. Today, um, we gather to celebrate uh, the most prolific and anticipated moment, event in human history, the Resurrection Sunday. Amen? We culminate this Holy Week at Resurrection Sunday. And like I said last week, we alone are not celebrating. This is the end of Passover week for Jews all over the globe. It is a time where they remember the Exodus, a time of freedom from bondage as slaves and God's miraculous provision to a promised land. It was a true precursor to all that they anticipate in their coming Messiah who was prophesied and promised to come on a Passover. They commemorate an exodus from the grip of slavery. They commemorate an exodus from oppression to freedom. God split the Red Sea in two and made a way for them. How God made a way, an exodus, when there truly was no other way. Foreshadowed for us what Jesus is going to do for us on the cross. It's Jesus' death and the cross, his subsequent resurrection. Jesus became our Red Sea. It was our exodus from the grip of slavery. Jesus was our exodus from oppression and freedom and unto freedom. And Jesus, as he was nailed on the cross in order to make a way for us, took upon him all depravity, all sin, your sin and my sin. And he became our exodus from hurt and deception. Our exodus paying for everything that you and I deserved. It was Jesus making a way when there was no other way. Amen? This morning we've titled the sermon, Jesus is Our Exodus. And in many respects, in many respects, our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrate and anticipate what we already know to be true. As they culminated this week of Passover... As they culminated this week at the, a special time of feasting, the feasting of unleavened bread, which I hope to unpack some elements of that for you today, I want you to know that Jesus has continually revealed himself, not even in this day as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark and through the weeks leading to this one, Jesus has revealed himself as Messiah and he still does it today. When a few weeks ago we looked at Jesus' authority over illness, Jesus' authority over darkness. Jesus' authority over demons. We saw Jesus' authority even to heal the, to heal the paralytic. To heal those who were lepers. And yes, Jesus' authority over sin. We saw Jesus last week leave that, that place of demonstrating his authority to call a tax collector the scourge of their society. And to eat and dine with tax collectors and prostitutes. And we saw the Pharisees, the religious right of the day, turn and say, who is this? Why does he eat with the people that God hates? Why does he eat with the sinner? And Jesus turned and said, well, I didn't come for the well, but for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. And in that same diatribe of accusation, that same dialogue of questioning, another question rose from the Pharisees. And it continues in Mark 
uh, 2, verses 18 through 22, it says it like this. This same picture, part 2 from last week. Jesus came for the sinner, and they respond like this. Now, John's disciples, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples fast and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth to an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins." No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins. We're going to try to unpack this today on this Easter Sunday, but I want to start by just telling you that Jesus, in this line of questioning, his response is almost as if he's exasperated. They look at him and say, you dine with sinners, those that we ostracize ourselves from, those that our religion counts us, uh, is, is established by our separation from such people because we are good and they are counted amongst the bad. And Jesus says, look, I came for the sinner. I came for the one who needed to be relieved, who knew they needed to be relieved, who knew of their own depravity. I didn't come and spend my time with those who needed convincing thereof. And then they turn and say, well, why do, why do these disciples fast, the religious, the holy, but your disciples, they don't fast? And it's as if Jesus goes, man, are we still on this? Like, you're still here? Like, I'm in the middle of a feast. We're in the middle of a party. The time is for feasting. We're feasting. We're not fasting right here. You see, what he is talking about is this. In Luke 18, last week as I read, you, Jesus gave a description of how the, the tax collector would walk into the temple and pray and how the Pharisee would walk into the temple and pray. It says the tax collector beat his chest and couldn't even look to heaven because he knew of his sin and his depravity. But the Pharisee, he prayed and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Anybody else ever justified your own uh, righteousness by going, at least I'm not that dude. I'm saying, at least I'm not like this guy. I give a tenth of all that I have. I fast twice weekly. This is because the Pharisees had imposed on the people a religious fast on Monday and Thursday of every week. So we know contextually this this dialogue is happening right here on either a Monday or a Thursday because they are asking, why do your disciples not fast when it's a lawful day of fasting? And Jesus turns, and here's the thing. He's not rejecting the law. He's not rejecting what was prescribed in Scripture. He's here to fulfill that, not abolish it, and he does. But Jesus says, okay, look, I will reject everything that you have interpreted and imposed on the people. The only scriptural fast ever given biblically 
in the law was found in Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 31. The only biblical fast prescribed. Now, I want to tell you that fasting is an amazing spiritual practice. It's one that I, I practice because Jesus practiced it. And throughout Scripture, you can see multiple day fasts accumulated. Jesus fasted 40 days just to prove his authority over the enemy in the desert, in the wilderness, before he began his ministry. But the only day ever prescribed lawfully to fast was on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement one time annually as the people mourned their sin that required blood to cover it. One. And Jesus says, it's not Yom Kippur. This is not that day. We are feasting. And he likens by the illustration, why would, why would my people fast when the groom is with them? They understood that weddings were a celebration. Weddings were a celebration that required a week long of eating and drinking. In fact, that week, Jesus kind of exposed himself for the first time. His very first miracle happened at the wedding in Cana where he turned water to wine. So he's saying we're not in a time of fasting. We're in a time of feasting. But in Mark 2.20, it says they will fast though. They will fast because fasting was always tied to a time of mourning and self-denial. It says, but the time will come when the groom will be taken from them. And then on that day, they will fast. A small prophecy to show Jesus and his followers how they'll feel once he's dead. Once he's gone before the resurrection, what it's going to be like for them once he vacates. Let's read it. In Mark 15, 33 through 47, it says this. When it was noon, darkness came over all the land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, so he's calling for Elijah, Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, mixed it on a stick, and offered it to him as a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome, Jesus' mother and his siblings. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem when it was already evening because it was the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God. Just five days before this, they were laying palm fronds at his feet because they believed and trusted an eternal, an earthly kingdom is about to be established and this is our Messiah, but they didn't understand. It says Pilate was surprised. Oh, sorry, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who himself was looking forward to the kingdom, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead, summoned the centurion, a master executioner, as he asked him whether he was already dead or not. 
When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in the tomb, cut out the rock and rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. They were devastated. These people were in mourning because their promised, the one they placed their hopes in, the closest thing they'd ever seen to God, the one who proclaimed to be God, revealed himself, authority over everything dark. And the one who loved and ate with sinners, the one who came for sinners, was now dead. They were unable to eat, probably the last thing on their minds. They are brokenhearted. In fact, we see this play out in Luke 24 as Jesus resurrects and reveals himself to Cleopas and the other disciple along the Emmaus road. And when he shows up amongst them, they don't recognize him at first. And he says, why are you grieving so desperately? Why are you so hurt? And they look at him as if he's, if he's a fool, a buffoon. Like, do you not know of all that has just taken place? I mean, we put all our hopes, we banked on Jesus of Nazareth. Do you not hear of all that just took place with him in Jerusalem? He's dead. He's gone. And it says that he planned to go on, but they begged him to stay. And so he went into the house with them. Now, this is the best part. I love this. It says that they, he went into the house with them as a guest. And it says that he took the bread and broke it. Now, how many of you feel comfortable if your guest just started getting in your pantry, right? <laughs> like, he doesn't wait to be served. He takes the bread, breaks it, and it says, upon that breaking of bread, their eyes were opened, and they saw the resurrected Lord, and they celebrated. Jesus ends the time of fasting by breaking bread and saying, it is a time of feasting. I am back. Amen? Amen. So, Jesus is not rejecting the law. Jesus is, is rejecting their imposed requirements, not God's. Those things that quantified them as good in their own minds, their own self-righteousness. Throughout Scripture, Jesus likened this this self-promotion, this self-righteousness, this sin as leaven or yeast. On Friday, our brothers and sisters who are Jewish celebrated the end of Passover with a feast. That feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's its title. It has multiple elements. It has candles that kind of begin the entire ceremony. It has a Seder plate which sits at the center of the dinner and that seder plate has multiple elements that are symbolic of things that were rich to them in the history and the celebration of the exodus it is highlighted and cut throughout by four cups of wine the cup of sanctification is the first the cup of deliverance is the second at the cup of deliverance they celebrate how god gave them away through every plague then the cup of redemption is third. And then the cup of praise, hope. The anticipation of a Messiah. This is, this is the fourth one. This is the one that Jesus refused to drink of. Because in Revelation, he says, we will dine and we'll drink of this cup after I come back. And we're reunited at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So I'm not going to drink of the fourth cup. 
Because my kingdom will be established and we'll drink of that cup when it is. Amen? This is the one we all still anticipate. But it's titled the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it is highlighted by the bread. Representative of the Exodus because they had to run off so quick into the night that they didn't have time for their, their bread to rise. Didn't have time for yeast and self-promotion. So the entire practice begins with the bread and it also ends with the bread. There are three layers of bread in the practice on the plate. There's one here underneath, the third layer, the second layer, and then the first during this dinner, you only eat of the first and the third layers. The second is sacred. Now, if you were to ask a rabbi, they would tell you that this represents the unity. And it signifies the caste system of Judaism. The high priest, the priests, and the rest of Judaism. They start by taking the middle layer from the, from the unity and they break it placing one half back in the center and the other half they take and wrap like this. And the father asks for the children to hide their eyes because they're going to play a game a little bit later. And the father hides this wrapped piece of bread somewhere in the house and they continue through the formality of the dinner. At some point, soon, the formality of dinner is run through this Seder plate. The morar, the bitter herbs, representing the bondage of slavery. The carpus or the parsley, representing both green for, for new life and hope, but it literally signifies the hyssop by which they dipped in blood and wiped over the doorframe so the death angel would pass over them during Passover. The corset, a mixture of wine, apple, juice, and honey, so sweet to represent the mortar used to build cities to Pharaoh. So symbolic, they have an element in their dinner that represents the mortar and the brick. You hear that? Very intentional, very deep, very rich. The egg, which represents new life. At Easter, we kind of symbolize the egg. I can't do much for your bunny, but I can give you your egg. Okay? And at the end of the formality, before they drink of the third cup of wine, as they get past the second, they crack the egg and they share it because it represents the new life that is available in the Messiah. We take a break in the dinner and it's an informal moment where we just eat, where we just eat of all kosher foods. But then after that eating, the dinner cannot continue in its formality until the redeeming of the afikomen. What is the afikomen? It's the name given to that hidden piece of bread that is wrapped somewhere in the house. So the father goes, it's time. And the children all get up and they run to the house scurrying, seeing who they can find, who can find the afikomen. And when they do, the one who finds it first, the child who finds the afikomen has to come to the father. He brings it to the father who is leading the entire dinner. And he says, it says that he gives the child a gift. 
He then takes that bread, fuses it back to its original piece, and places it back between the unity and the middle layer. Now, I'm going to hope in our eyes a little bit here today, I hope, and say that I believe that this represents, from a Christian perspective, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The entire practice begins by breaking the Son, wrapping Him and placing Him in the tomb somewhere in the house. And for whoever can find Him, God gives a gift. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us children of wrath. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God was eternal life through His Son, a gift from the Father. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that who should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, whosoever. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, those he came for, he died for us. Romans 10.9, for all who believe in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead and confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord, they shall be saved. So this all-important piece of bread made me wonder what does afikomen mean, right? Is that a natural question? I mean, if we have this to represent the mortar and the brick, then this piece that is the alpha and omega of this entire dinner, we titled the entire dinner after it. Jesus called himself the bread of life. I wanted to know what does afikomen mean? So I went to my rabbi brothers who were near me, and I asked them all about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I asked about the Seder plate. Seder means order, by the way. They walked through a booklet called the Haggadah, which means the telling of the Exodus through the entire night. And I asked them, what does Afikomen mean? Every one of them, their response, after dinner. What? It means after dinner. Why? Because it comes after dinner. Now, students, what do you think of that? What? That's weak. I think that description is incredibly weak because when you have this to represent the mortar that built the cities to Pharaoh, the entire ceremony begins and ends with the afikomen, and it simply means dessert which they're not going to eat of, by the way, after dinner. So I did some research. I did some crunching. I was unsatisfied with this answer, and I went and I found what, I looked at the word afikomen, and I found what it meant. In fact, afikomen is the only Greek word in the entire practice of Seder. Everything is in Hebrew, Afikomen is the Hebrew pronunciation for the only Greek word in the entire practice of Seder. The reason they call it after dinner is because they don't have a definition for it. It's a Greek word. That word is epikomenos. Can you say afikomen? Good, you did good. That's Hebrew. 
do you know what afikoman actually means? It means I came. I was here. Immediately upon this revelation, I run to my rabbi brothers and sisters. I, I say, hey, rabbis, do you know what afikoman means? You gather every year, centuries, every year. You will end this year's Passover Seder by saying a statement. If not, if not this year, then maybe next year in Jerusalem, every year missing Jesus, every year missing the Messiah who has come. I was here. You missed it. And their response. This is the moment where Jesus introduced something to the world for the first time. Jesus took this bread and didn't fuse it back to the, the middle before he did something very important. He looked at his disciples on the Passover that he said, I've anticipated eating this Passover with you. On the night of his betrayal, he looked at those around him. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. The very next moment in the dinner is the wine, the third cup, the cup of redemption. And you guessed it. Jesus took that cup and said, this wine is my blood shed for you to atone for the sin of the world. A new covenant is formed in my blood, both Jew and Gentile alike. Drink as oft as you remember me. And this is not a moment of pride or arrogance. This is a moment that should break our hearts because our Jewish brothers all over the globe sat down on a Friday night and again proclaimed, if not this year, maybe next year, if he doesn't come this year, but I've come. Stephen looked at the leaders in Acts and said, you stiff-necked. You always deny the Spirit. I want you to understand something pretty important. There's a, an expert in the, in the area of mathematic probability and statistics. His name's Peter Stoner. A few years ago, he published a book called Science Speaks. And he wanted to uh, figure out the mathematical likelihood, the probability that Eight different prophecies could be fulfilled in one person. One, one person could embody eight separate prophecies. Do you know what Peter Stoner found and published as his mathematical likelihood? The mathematical likelihood of one person fulfilling eight prophecies in themselves is one in ten to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros, folks. 17 zeros. I want to show you what that looks like in practice. So, so let's imagine that we have a silver dollar for every square inch of Texas. Let's say that we have a silver dollar for every square inch of the 200, over 260,000 square miles for the state of Texas, which is six times larger than the state of Tennessee as a landmass. 
you have to imagine that every square inch is covered by a silver dollar and it's not just covered, covered to two feet deep. Two feet deep of silver dollars and we have to take one, we have to mark it up, paint it black, paint it black and I want you to then let a hurricane rip, let a tornado rip, let a hurricane come in, an earthquake and let it mix up all those coins. I want them to churn then you take a friend and you fly over those, that land area mass and find whatever coordinate you desire and drop your black coin. Then, when all the churning is stopped, you take your friend, you blindfold them, walk them out into that area, and the mathematical probability of 1 in 10 to the 17th power is that your friend will pick up that black coin on the first try. That's, the, that's what we're talking about. That's the mathematical probability that your friend will pick up that coin in the midst of that hurricane. That's what it looks like for someone to fulfill eight separate and given prophecies at different times through the generations to be embodied in one person. Jesus fulfilled over 300 biblical messianic prophecies. Amen. What's that probability look like? <laughs> Jesus embodied over 300 messianic prophecies. He is our Exodus. Amen. Jesus responds by saying, you can't put new wine and old wineskins, something they understood. They would take a, an animal, form leather from it. It would be a pocket. They would put wine in it, let it ferment. It would expand. It would blow up. And then they would have to take that wine and pour it into another wineskin. It was a part of the process. But the one that was left, the one that had, had first fermented, it would be thin, withered, cracked, and brittle. If you tried to put new wine in it, it would burst and everything would be lost. What Jesus is saying is this. You stiff-necked. You have holes all through your theology. You have holes all through your religion. You can't try to take portions of the gospel and sew it to what you hold to. It's altogether new. I have fulfilled everything. I came to abolish, to fulfill the law, not abolish it. So it is a new day in a completely new way. And unless you receive me, Instead of trying to sew a new patch to an old way of thinking, you will miss me yet again because I have come. Mark 16, verses 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary of mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? I mean, when we get there, it's big. How are we going to do that? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
see the place where they put him, but go and tell. The requirement of all Christians, the requirement of all those who claim to be disciples of Jesus, go and make more disciples. Go and tell his disciples and tell Peter that he is going ahead of you unto Galilee. You will see him there just as he foretold. As he met with those disciples on the Emmaus Road, he said, did you not know that the Messiah must suffer and die and defeat the grave and take back the lives that were damned for eternity? Did you not know that the Father must turn his back on me because I became sin? And when I decided, three days later, the temple was destroyed, but I came back and rebuilt it. I went into the belly of the earth and I came out. The sign of Jonah so that you would know that I have authority over even the grave. He has risen. He is not here. Rather, in and through his death and resurrection, he wants to pour new wine into new wineskins. In other words, when you come before the crucified and the resurrected Jesus, this Jesus who defeated death, sin, pain, hurt, and suffering to give him your life, then he will make you into something altogether new. And who here needs a fresh start? A new creation. John 8, verse 34 through 36 is this. Jesus responded and said, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. He will be your exodus from the grip of slavery. Jesus is our exodus from oppression to freedom. He is our exodus from the hurt and depravity and sin, taking on all that we deserved and paying for it in our place. Jesus makes a way when there is no other way. Today, will you accept the fulfillment of the law and prophets in Jesus, our exodus? Will you reject your old religion, your efforts to be good and receive the gift of God, redemption, accepting new life, knowing that it's a gift? There's no religion or moral ritual that will give you nobility. Your very best efforts, he said, are as filthy rags. Nothing will make you good. In fact, that self-righteousness he called leaven, sin, we could never earn it. He is risen. And this morning, Jesus is our exodus. Today, let's respond to him in remembrance at his table. With the bread and the wine that he introduced to the world on that night of his betrayal, you can come to his table. This morning, you can respond to him with repentance for salvation. Today may be the day of salvation for you can respond to him at his altar. I'm going to be available. Scott's going to be available. There are other staff here. Prayer partners will be available. If you want to talk to someone about new life, then come. Maybe today you just need to fall in love with your first love all over again because there is an undeniable truth revealed through history and through Scripture that Jesus has come. And He is our only way. He said of Himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes the Father except through me. So this morning, because he is risen and he is our exodus, let's respond 
to Jesus. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand. As we move to a time of response, let's sing out to the one who made a way as worship. In Jesus' name.